read God's holy inspired word this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter six. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only dwell who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto whom no man hath seen nor can see to whom be honor and power everlasting amen charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, 
that they may lay hold on eternal life. And now our text this morning is the last two verses. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we've been placed in this position of having to install two new elders in the middle of the year. Bob Boss to a two and a half year term and Chuck Caminga to a one and a half year term. The occasion is unusual, even grievous. But we thank God for the two men that he has called to serve the congregation in the office of elder, even as we thank God for our faithful office bearers. The occasion also gives us opportunity this morning to consider the weight of the calling that God gives us and the dangers that we face as elders in Christ's church. And that's especially true as we see Satan's attacks increasing in these perilous times of these last days. The Apostle Paul saw it necessary to give this instruction to Timothy, whom God had called for the service of his church. And the Apostle did so knowing the many conflicts that would confront Timothy in the course of his serving in the office that God had given him. Paul himself had experienced the same. And he knew that Timothy would likewise. But the Holy Spirit also preserved this word for us. As Paul spoke to Timothy about the opposition that he would face, He told him of the importance of fighting the good fight of faith, but doing so while following after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And this instruction wasn't just for Timothy, though first addressed to him. The Holy Spirit preserved this for us, for you elders boss and Caminga, as well as for me and our fellow elders in this congregation. He knew that the peril that the church and office bearers would face would only increase. And while we might be stunned at the departures that we have experienced, we are called to keep that which is committed to our trust the historic Reformed faith, set forth also in our Reformed confessions, our creeds, and avoiding what the text refers to as profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, and we'll consider what the apostle was referring to. So the theme of this text is keeping that which is committed to your trust. 
And as that theme is set forth in this text, we must consider, first of all, what is committed to your trust? Secondly, the dangers to this trust. And finally, the proper keeping of this trust. First, when we read the exhortation, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, we have to face the question, what is meant by the word that? What is this that has been committed to your trust? And I think you all realize that Paul refers here to the gospel. I referred a minute ago to our historic Reformed faith, also set forth in our Reformed confessions. That's just another way of referring to the gospel. We might also speak of the word of truth. But why does he refer to it this way? Literally, he says, guard the deposit. In our day, we might think of the armored trucks with their armed guards that pick up the money deposits from large businesses to bring them to the bank. But in Paul's day, banks were not so widely used as in our day. So when a man of wealth went on a long journey, He might leave his most valuable possessions in the trust of someone that he could trust. Perhaps even more than one person. So you remember Jesus' parable in Luke 19, verses 12 through 27, where a certain nobleman was going to go on a long journey, and he called ten servants entrusting to each of them an equal measure of his money, saying, occupy till I come. That is, put this money to good use until I return. Well, the Bible that you hold and which you carry with you when you minister to God's people in their needs is the most valuable thing God has given you. And by that Bible, I trust you you realize I'm not referring merely to the book, perhaps well-worn, nicely bound, perhaps nowadays an app on your phone. I'm referring to the contents of this Word of God. The gospel of our salvation. And let's not forget the word gospel is literally good news. Think of that. We are surrounded by bad news. That bad news presses upon us and touches our lives too. Just about every occasion that will call for your attention as elders in Christ church will involve bad news of one sort or another. Sin, troubled homes, sudden grief, affliction. But God has given us good news. That's the gospel. It's that which alone provides the solution 
to the sorrow brought by all the bad news. The gospel is that which points us to Christ. The value of this word is so great because by it is revealed Jesus Christ as our Savior. And God is our faithful, loving Father for Jesus' sake. It's evident that Paul is referring to the gospel as that which has been committed to our trust because already in chapter 1, verse 11, he speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And he's saying to Timothy, and the Spirit is saying to us, God has put this same treasure in your trust. God entrusts his truth to his church. And to office bearers in particular. And he calls us to safeguard as well as to serve as the voice to proclaim and to evangelize by that truth. Or to use the language of 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17. To reprove, to correct, to instruct that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The calling to keep that which is committed to your trust, to guard that treasure, is a serious calling. It's one thing for you young people to have received your driver's license before you have your own vehicle and for dad to give you the keys to the car and say, be careful. He, you realize he, he is, he's not expecting that you will go out and drive recklessly. He's counting on you driving safely, returning home in one piece with the vehicle undamaged. But the calling to guard the treasure of the gospel is far more important. You and I are called to preserve it unharmed. We are not free to do with this what we want. To play recklessly with it. You can imagine the reaction of a businessman who goes on a long journey, entrusting the financial aspect of his business to the chief financial officer, only to return home to find out that that CFO, knowing that the boss likes nice cars, went out and spent two years' worth of the company's profits to fill a large warehouse with with high-priced cars, voiding the opportunity for the businessman to expand his business as he had planned. That CFO might find a new job, maybe washing those high-priced cars. But God's word in the last chapter of the Bible 
issues the warning, Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. God, who has entrusted to the office bearers of his church the treasures of the gospel, says you have no right to innovate to come up with new teachings. You have no right. The faith of our fathers is not subject to reinvention and reinterpretation or redefinition of doctrinal concepts. It's to be preserved and cherished guarded and defended and passed on to others, unchanged and without damage. Paul would later warn Timothy of those who have itching ears, who turn their ears from the truth, and who instead are given over to fables. There are always those who are eager to embrace new ideas. But we are bound to guard the treasure. Or as Jude puts it, earnestly to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We have to remember that what has been committed to us is not something we devise. It's not something we may reinvent. The treasure is not out of us. It's been brought to us to guard. And therefore, we can set aside all ambition to make ourselves a name. That's not what the offices are about. We don't seek to be seen or to be held in reputation. When it comes to the gospel, we're not leaders, we're followers. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 1 verse 20 that the scripture is not of private interpretation. It's a matter of what Christ has given to his church. That's the importance of our Reformed confessions. In our creeds is set forth what the church believes has been entrusted to us. Again, the gospel committed to our trust is that which reveals Christ to us, the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Just to use references from the apostle in this first epistle to Timothy, it is the gospel that unfolds the wonder that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Chapter 1, verse 15. 
So by this treasure, we are pointed to to him who reconciles us unto the perfectly holy God, whom was so greatly offended by our sins. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. By his word is revealed the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory, chapter 3, verse 16. By this word of God, God calls us to the life of thankfulness that he requires of us, that we follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, also fighting the good fight of faith, laying hold on that eternal life whereunto we've been called. We read that in chapter 6. These truths we must keep lest God remove the treasure from us for our ingratitude. I must make the point that this calling comes to all to whom has been given this treasure of the gospel. Every one of us has the calling to keep that which God has committed to us, to our trust, to guard the riches of the, of the deposit that Christ has given us, Individual members in Christ's church, widows and widowers, young people, even our children must know that the gospel of our salvation in Jesus Christ, given to us by the sovereign grace and tender mercies of our God, is an unspeakable treasure. Seeing Jesus shine in the light of his word is a treasure beyond compare and therefore must be guarded by us, husbands and wives, employers and employees, fathers and mothers, must know that of which Paul speaks when he writes, in Colossians 1, verse 27, of God making known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the treasure we must guard. Because that's the treasure we want to entrust to the generations that follow up. But this is especially true for you to whom has been committed the oversight of the congregation, you elders in Loveland Protestant Reformed Church. Because God refers to your office in particular as the office called to be the keeper of our salvation. Elders are those who serve the flock by taking the oversight thereof, 
guarding and protecting them, watching over their souls as those that must give account, and leading them in the way marked out by this undefiled Word of God. We have to be careful, therefore, to follow the simple gospel to the profit of the souls of these God's people. We don't look for credit. We only desire to be faithful in what God has entrusted to our care. That which has been committed to your trust is in danger. And the danger to that trust is the scandal that people bring upon that which is committed to your trust. That can come by novel interpretations of God's word that corrupt that word of truth. Paul had seen that. He spoke in chapter 1 of those who had turned aside unto vain jangling, who had taken the glorious truth of the gospel and turned it into empty words. In our text, the apostle warns against profane and vain babblings. Calvin describes that as the verbose and bombastic style of those who, not content with the simplicity of the gospel, turn it into a profane philosophy. They are those who take up the space of ten pages to bring confusion. When the truth of the gospel can be set very clearly in a couple pages and leave God's people with a clear understanding of the concepts being treated. The apostle speaks of that vain babbling as profane. You understand the profanity is the defiling of God's name. And it is so because the truth that God has entrusted to us changes our lives that the world might know that God's word is powerful. The spirit working by that means to take sinners and recreate them into the, after the image of God's dear Son. So that when we are brought to stand before the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ, the end of that true doctrine is to sanctify us unto God according as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Therefore, Calvin said, because all this rhetoric which ambitious men use does not draw the world to God, nor dedicate it to his service, Therefore, St. Paul calls it profane. Furthermore, the apostle speaks of the oppositions of science, falsely so-called. That opposition is the antithesis, the opposite of God's truth. 
And when you hear that word science, you mustn't think of a subject taught in school, what might be known as the branch of natural science. The word science speaks of knowledge. But whereas the gospel sets forth true knowledge, those who depart from the gospel embrace a false knowledge. Paul was referring most likely to the early heresy of Gnosticism, which laid claim to a higher form of knowledge than the poor common church folk. They made the Bible too difficult for common people to understand. Here again, that which obscures the simplicity of true doctrine and exalts itself above the plain and humble doctrine of godliness is falsely called knowledge. And let's also realize that Paul speaks of those profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, adding which some professing have erred concerning the faith. They didn't set out to abandon the faith. They got caught up in it. Or were carried away, some out of ambition or pride or some other undetermined motives, others simply by having itching ears for some new perspective, some new thing. But while we can certainly talk about those who corrupt the Word of God, we have to realize, my fellow office bearers, we have to realize that demons are at work in our day. That's what we're up against in guarding the treasure entrusted to us. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principality, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6, verse 12. So if you go back a couple chapters to the opening verse of 1 Timothy 4, this is what you read. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now you mustn't have the wrong understanding here. The Apostle is not teaching that Satan and his demons have control over humans and God is engaged in a war against Satan The devil is defeated. So when the apostle speaks of seducing spirits, and when I talk about demons being at work in our day, I want you to understand the apostle recognized the absolute sovereignty of God in these things. And so he wrote to the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 11, of those to whom God sends strong delusion that they might believe a lie. As God brings about the realization of his eternal purpose in the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
He also set Satan loose. And we see all kinds of evidence of it. And I don't refer primarily to the schism that has affected our churches, though we're compelled to consider that, given the fact that the installation of new elders this morning is occasioned by it. And then I say, I cannot understand the rejection of the plain teachings of many passages in the Bible and the desire to reinterpret certain articles of our Reformed confessions. I can't understand that by the intelligent, gifted people that have left us. I can't understand it except by demonic influence. And then there's the name-calling and appalling behavior that would be scandalous to the world should they read what, what is being published once or twice a month. Demonic influences. Demonic influences. But you elders deal with far more than that. The number of those casting off the the teachings of the Bible has increased in the years that I've been a pastor. People brought up in the churches, in godly homes even, who sat under faithful preaching, who were taught the word of God in catechism, rejecting it all, declaring themselves atheists, Demonic influences. The increase of worldliness in the church. In our churches. Again, it isn't anything new. The world has always pressed upon the church, even in the apostles' day. But as the world itself departs farther and farther from the remnants of Christian influence, and embraces every sin with gusto. So the worldliness that presses upon the church increases as consciences are seared. The holy institution of marriage is under intense attack in our day more so than at any time in history. Demonic influences. Men, women too, but men especially, are under relentless assault by sexual temptation in our day. Pornography is prevalent. Demonic influences. Again, we can list any number of sins and evidences of the spiritual attacks upon Christ's church and upon members of the church, but we have to remember that every one of those assaults is an attack upon God's truth, upon the gospel. And when we succumb to those attacks, 
We are committing the scandal of mishandling and misappropriating and rejecting the treasure that God has placed in our trust. If you take the plain teachings of the Bible and you twist them and you make it so confusing that a child cannot understand what you're talking about, you've forsaken the gospel. You pervert the gospel. And if you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 161 and 162, that you stand in awe of God's word and you rejoice at his word, and then you reject it in how you live, you mock that word. You not only don't take that word seriously, you reject the authority of God. Now you elders have to remember the importance of guarding your own hearts. On the last occasion of installation, I called attention to the importance of that from Psalm 112, verse 7. You do well to go back and listen to that sermon. Because one of the evidences of demonic influences in, in our day is the fall of many office bearers. I'm going to call attention shortly to what the keeping of that trust means but we have to recognize that that trust is, is endangered by many attacks upon that gospel. Sin is an attack upon the good news. It robs people of the joy that's found in Jesus. Sin brings separation from God in the form of our own consciousness. As elders, you have the calling to keep that which is committed to your trust so that you can labor faithfully with those whose lives have been devastated by falls into sin, as well as those brought into confusion by the deceit of Satan's devices. You have to keep that which is committed to your trust so that you can bring that glorious gospel to the brokenhearted so that you can comfort the downcast, so that you can be used by God to bring hope to the hopeless and healing to the distressed. You have to keep that which is committed to your trust so that you can minister with compassion and speak words of wisdom and resist the evildoers in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, you have to keep that which is committed to your trust so that you can do the work of an evangelist. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, amidst the hopelessness of the world around us. 
So let's conclude by considering briefly the proper keeping of this trust. The proper keeping of this trust means, first of all, we take this trust seriously. The proper attitude to take as church members, but particularly as elders, to whom has been committed this trust, proper attitude is that we tremble at this word. Because God promises... In Isaiah 66, verse 5, that he shall appear to the joy of those who tremble at his word. He shall appear to your joy amidst all the adversity that you face. But to tremble at his word is to recognize the seriousness of handling that word rightly. The next time Paul would write to Timothy, he would remind him in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You realize that text is often applied to ministers. It's used, a text that's used occasionally for the installation of a minister, or a seminary graduation, for example, and the application is correct. But we must understand that that same text is correctly applied to elders, even to deacons, to whom God has given the calling to bring the word with particular application to the needs of individual members in his household. That calling comes to you for your ministry to the individual needs in this congregation. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's to take seriously what God has entrusted to us. And because you cannot possibly anticipate all the various situations in which you will be called upon to bring the word, you will need consistently to spend time in the study of the scriptures, of this treasure, turning it over and over, inspecting every facet of the glorious truth God has entrusted to us, to minister to God's people, to see this congregation preserved and its members grow spiritually, especially in the face of the satanic attacks upon us, we have to have this correct. We have to get this right. We have to keep that which is committed to our trust. This is the record of who God is. By this he reveals what he has done in Jesus Christ and what he is doing by his Holy Spirit. This is the record of what he has promised to do. 
This is also, as we heard last Sunday, the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. This is the record of what tells us exactly how to live in thankfulness to him and how he brings that to expression in us and through us by his Holy Spirit. That means as well that guarding this treasure, guarding the truth is not only a matter of being faithful in in speaking what God has said, it's a matter of living it. We are called to follow Paul's example when he says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17, We are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Many, mind you, corrupt the word of God. And the term corrupt speaks of fornicating, committing adultery against the precious truth that God has entrusted to us. Some do that by perverting and twisting the Bible to form their own theology or serve their own ends, whatever that might be. But many corrupt that word of truth by not living as those redeemed by Christ. You realize, having heard the gospel, You are not saved by what you do. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ the righteous. But having been saved, you have his law written upon your heart. And you delight in it. And long to live in thankfulness to the God of your salvation. But there are those, they might even be office bearers, who live in such a way they hold the gospel in contempt. They say, by their lives, maybe even by their hidden lives, that what God has entrusted to me isn't important. It gets in the way of what I want. And should we as office bearers use God's word to show others how to live while we ourselves violate it? We show ourselves nothing more than manipulators of people instead of servants of our faithful Savior. We must be those who are consumed by the word. Who have so seen the love of God toward us. And the great wonder of our justification and salvation. By the precious blood of God's dear son. That we stand in awe. For what he has entrusted to us in the gospel. And we long that others know this same gospel by a true faith. 
And you already know that to keep that which is committed to our trust, to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ in the midst of this congregation, we need God's grace. We must cast ourselves upon him day by day. And congregation, pray for us. Pray for your office bearers. Day by day. But then listen to how the Apostle and the Holy Spirit closes this chapter. Speak... The apostles, speaking as the mouthpiece of our faithful Savior, closes with the words, Grace be with thee. Christ speaks that. Grace be with thee. Amen. Heavenly Father, give us all, and especially our office bearers, faithfulness in keeping that which thou hast committed to our trust. Give us to reflect the glory of thy grace in our lives. Grant that our lives might show our high esteem and love for thee and for the word of the gospel thou hast given us. Preserve us. Strengthen us and give our elders all that they need in the high calling thou hast given them. For Jesus' sake we pray and in our love for this congregation. Amen.